0: My name is Thomas, and I'm on staff at Calvary as well, and it's my joy to be able to open up the Scriptures on the weekend and engage God's Word, to know what God has said and how we we follow that and live into it. We've been in a series this, this year in the book of Luke, which is the historical record of all that Jesus said and did. It records His historical death and His historical resurrection, and we're getting ready to celebrate that at Easter. And where we are in the Gospel of Luke near the end is those final seven days as he's approaching Calvary to accomplish the mission on the cross. And the religious leaders of the day are becoming more and more aggressive. Their aggression towards Jesus is really palatable at this point. They seek to destroy him. We, we finished chapter 19 last week, and the religious leaders are now actively looking For ways to destroy Jesus, to destroy his credibility, to cause division between him and his followers, to cause some discord that maybe he would be arrested by Rome. And so they have these strategies in chapter 20 to accomplish that goal. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at one familiar text and ask a question within the text that's rarely asked. And so if you got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 20. If you need a Bible, two places. One in front of you, and the other one is on your phone. I would grab the ESV uh, app and just open up to Luke chapter 20. Then you can have the scriptures in your pocket wherever you go. So Luke chapter 20, the religious leaders are trying to destroy Jesus. And we're going to pick it up in verse 19, right after Jesus has told a convicting parable against the religious leaders. And, And they... They pick up on the fact that Jesus is talking about them. So, verse 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So, they're, they're afraid of, of the popular opinion of them as well. And so, they're restrained by what the people's opinion of Jesus is. And so they take another tactic. Verse 20, So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So one of their strategies is to present people to ask questions that should appear to be sincere. Like God loves questions. I don't know if you, if you know that. God loves your inquiry of Him. Like, is God really a God? Did He really exist? Did He really make this world? Did Jesus really come? He loves questions and inquiries. There are some people in the faith that I think are scared of questions and they try to, they try to subdue your questions and say, don't, don't ask questions, just believe. God loves questions. He loves your questions. If they're asked in this humble posture of inquiry, like, you want to know. These spies come Asking questions to try to entrap, destroy him. Now, the questions we want to ask are always questions of inquiry. Lord, teach us. Help us understand how we might live, who we are, what we're up to. But they come with these deceptive questions in in order to try to get him arrested. So they asked him this question. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. I mean, this is just like flattery. Like, we know you the best. Everybody likes you. So we know, this is what we know, that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? What's the question? Is it lawful for us to, To pay our taxes. Now, why would they ask that question? Well, one, it's it's a politically charged question. Because if if Jesus says yes, then he's affirming that the tax rate of the Roman Empire is justified. And it's a heavy tax burden, well over 30% of someone's annual income. And so then Jesus is aligned with Rome. And then what what would that opinion of his followers think? He's betrayed us, he's not for us. He's against us. He's in cahoots, cahoots with the government. But if he says no, what does Rome think of Jesus? Oh man, here's, here is this person who opposes government, who opposes the occupying force of Rome, the empire of Caesar. And so Rome will come in and discipline him. And so there's this question that's asked in a deceptive way with much flattery, to try to cause division and destruction of Jesus. And most commentators, most preachers who come to this text start looking at this basic question. Is like, is tax evasion okay or not? <laughs> like, how much do you have to pay? Do you pay taxes on gross? Like, it, it, should, we, should we always be paying taxes? Should I get a tax lawyer? Should I try to evade taxes? Can I look for loopholes? Can I put money offshore? Off the whole question about taxes. And Jesus' reply it's very simple. Well, bring me a denarius. Bring, bring me a coin of the day. Whose image is on this coin? That's what Jesus says. So, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. See, the Roman coinage is similar to our coinage today. It, it puts the image of authority on it. When, when Jay and I were up at Trinity A few weeks ago, we went to the library. And in the library, they had this really cool display of all these biblical coins. I grabbed pictures of two denariuses. One is the time of Caesar Augustus. That's the coinage that was printed and in circulation at the time of Jesus' birth. The second one is of Tiberius Caesar, which is the coinage that was minted and in circulation at the time of Jesus' death or at the time of this Teaching. And so when Jesus asks the crowd, Pass me a denarius, they're passing him one of these coins. And this coin has the likeness, the image of Caesar on it. And by having the image of Caesar on it, what that shows is that wherever this coin is in use, you live under the authority of Caesar. The imprint of Caesar's image on its coinage is to demonstrate that Caesar has the authority over this domain. Everywhere the coinage is in circulation shows the authority of Caesar. Now, kings would do this for for as long as time has existed. They would take images of themselves, icons... And they would place them throughout their kingdom so that if you were to enter their territory and you would see their icon, maybe on coinage or in sculpture, you would know that you have entered their dominion and that you are under their authority. And so Jesus is very, very smart here. He's not going to play into their trap. He just says, well, bring me a coin. It looks like that belongs to Caesar. It has his picture on it. And so, so therefore, this is what he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render just simply means to return, to give back, to submit it back to its rightful owner. So think of it this way. If, if you're a parent of young kids and you're playing a sport, basketball, volleyball, soccer, after the game, half the kids leave their water bottles on the court or the field. And then the coach picks them all up, right, and looks at whose name is on the water bottle. And then they bring it back to you. You could use the word render. They look at it and say, oh, look, it has the Milburn name on it. Let's render back to Thomas what belongs to Thomas. And so what, see, what, what Jesus is doing is, well, give me a coin. The one that you're so concerned about whose it belongs to, it looks like Caesar has put his image on it. Therefore, it belongs to Caesar, not to you. You're in his dominion. You have to render, give back what belongs to Caesar. Does all that make sense? Okay, that's not important. (laughs) None of that matters. That's where most people spend their time. Is like, so how how much taxes do I have to pay? What's my relationship with government? And that's a good question. It's not the question. The question isn't, Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. The question that really matters is render to God's what, God, what, what is God's. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And to God, the things that are God's. And so the question that I have is where has God minted his likeness, impressed his image, So that the things that bear his image belong to him and are therefore rendered to him. What bears the image of God? That's the question. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1 for that. The very first pages of the Bible describe how God has created the world, He creates it in six days. And what you see if you read the Genesis account, is that there was nothing and then there was something. God said, Let there be light. And God started creating these, these, this picture of light and day, darkness, and sorry, light and darkness, night and day, sun and moon, land and sea, creatures above the earth, creatures on the earth. He creates plants. And everything in the earth. And he creates plants and animals after their kind. And so he says, look at these seeds for this kind of plant. And let it bring the plants of its kind forward. And look at the animals inside the ocean. And let it bear fruit. Let it have offspring according to its kind. And look at the animals on the earth. And they will procreate and bring animals according to its kind. And then on the sixth day, God does something radically different. He creates humanity Not after its own kind, but in the likeness, the image of God. He creates humanity. This is Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So not according to their kind, not according to the kind of animals, but of a different kind. In the image of God. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So, God says, Let us make humanity. Not after its own kind, but after our kind, in our likeness. We're going to create humanity in our image. And we're going to engender them male and female. And what it means to be male, what it means to be female, is this beautiful expression of the image of God. Maybe you've heard the term, it's a Latin term, imago day. The best term to use is the original Hebrew word, salem. The Salem of God. The image of God. We're going to create them, male and female. And then what are they going to do? What marks out their image-bearing role? Well, the volumes have been written on this. Is it like our mental faculties? Is it our physical abilities? Is it our relationship with one another that represents the image of God? And you can investigate many of those things, which are very true. But what is said here in Genesis is this. That image-bearers unlike everything else in the world, is given, you see the word, dominion. Now, dominion doesn't mean destruction, to pillage and plunder the earth for your benefit. It means stewardship, to cultivate and care and bring forth the resources of the earth for its flourishment. And so they are given dominion, authority, over the earth that God has created to go be image bearers, icons throughout the whole earth to bring forth the earth's fruitfulness and be stewards over God's good creation. And as Caesar would scatter his coin throughout all of his territories and kings would mark out their territories with statues of icons of the king, God embedded his image into human beings and scatter them over the earth to show that anyone who sees another person in the world says, oh, an image bearer, an image bearer, an image bearer, an image bearer who lives under the authority of the king. So whose earth is this? The one who impressed his image on humanity and gave them dominion. And so to rob someone of their true humanity or to rob them of their image-bearing design is whenever you rob another human being of their God-given right to have dominion, to have authority over creation. Do you see that? And so if you enslave a human being, if you kill a human being, you rob a human being of their image Bearing right from their creator. Now that's Genesis 1. And some things happen between Genesis 1 and Genesis 4, which is Genesis 3. And what happens in Genesis 3 is where humanity, these image-bearing men and women, rebel against God and say, we don't want to submit to you and your authority. We're our own authority. And God says, oh, you you don't want to do that. Death and destruction comes into every sphere of life if you do that. You're going to destroy your relationship first and foremost with God, with one another, with yourself, with creation. That's exactly what we see happen. Genesis 3, all of those relationships are destroyed. And the question is, is the image of God destroyed in humanity? Has it been lost, God's likeness in men and women? The answer is no. This is, this is Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, if I can get there. So, this is the book of genealogy of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man or humanity when they were created. So, that's Genesis 5. That comes after Genesis 3. I'm no math major, just easy, easy to understand. Genesis 9, you get to the story of Noah, God's recreation, a new start for humanity after it had destroyed itself so much. In Genesis chapter nine, look at it, the image is reaffirmed, and its value is taught. Genesis chapter nine, verse five. Sorry, verse six, "Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made, in his, for God made man in his own image." So the image-bearing quality of humanity is still present after the fall. And its value is still present after the fall. The reason we treat human beings with great value is not because some organization tells us that. It's because God says that. God says you're valuable. Because he made you in his image, in his likeness, you were made. You and I bear the image of God. We ask the question, what did God imprint, mint his image on? Humanity. Pictures of humanity. Young and old. Rich and poor. Men and women. People with great abilities, inabilities, disabilities. Every human being on the planet. Of every tribe, nationality, and language is minted, made, created in the image of God. Now, Christians have taught this for centuries. They they want people to know that they're not an accident on the planet. They were designed on purpose and with a purpose, for a purpose. And they have catechized these things. I mean, they, they put them in in ways in which people can understand. A catechism that I want you to look at is the Heidelberg Catechism. It happened in 1563. So this is post-Reformation. When, when we tried to reform the church of all of its problems, and the church was unwilling, there was a huge split. Catholicism and Protestantism. And now there were all these different branches of Protestantism, and, and there was a try of a, a, an effort to keep the unity amongst the church through these catechisms of, of what we believe to be true. And the Heidelberg Catechism came out of Germany in 1563. And the very first question that is asked is about this very issue. And the reason it was set up is to keep the unity of the church and then also to teach young members of the church what God has done. And so this is, this is the Heidelberg Catechism. And they're always set up in questions and answers. And I think this will be fun. I'll ask the question and then collectively we'll read the first part of the answer. So here's question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? Let's read the answer together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is our only hope in life? We sang about this. What is our only hope in life and death? that I do not belong to myself, but that I belong in body and soul, life and death to Jesus Christ, to God, my maker. Now that is not culturally acceptable today. And in the cultural moment in which we live, in the West, this is, not a, this is not a worldwide thing, but this is the, a Western thing. Our culture is having an identity crisis. And they don't know who they are, and I would submit, because they don't know whose they are. They don't know who they are because they don't know who they belong to. They don't know who their Heavenly Father is, the benevolent creator of them who's made them in all of their uniqueness and beauty and personality and creativity and desire to create and have dominion and bring forth the resources of the world in his likeness. And so, we have to ask ourselves, is this really true? Is this really true? Because if it's really true, if this is true, then to live in opposition of this truth does not bring freedom, It'll bring our own destruction. It'll bring our own destruction to live in opposition to this. There's a man named Alan Noble, and he writes this book, You Are Not Your Own. And this is his kind of synopsis of our cultural moment, of what the world believes about themselves. He writes I am my own. Only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. And no one has the right to challenge how I may define or express myself. Our society assumes we are who we are and we belong only unto ourselves. And he says this thinking is like a cage. And the metaphor he gives to to describe the cage that that does for the human soul is this analogy of a lion at a zoo. Alan writes, Imagine a lion caged behind steel bars and concrete walls at a zoo. You've been to the Denver Zoo. You've probably seen all of these animals in cages. The lion's habitat, the nutrient-dense food, they have overhead lighting. Everything has been engineered to prolong the lion's life and keep it Docile. And yet although this habitat was built for a lion the lion it was built for doesn't exist anywhere in reality in the world except it exists in captivity alone the lion doesn't hunt anymore it doesn't roam it doesn't behave like any lion in the savanna the zoo is more than a habitat it has changed the lion into a different kind of animal entirely. You see the picture he's saying? You take a, a lion as it's made to be, roaming the savanna, hunting, and you bring it into a cage and you domesticate it and you feed it so that its life is prolonged and it stays docile. That's no longer the lion it was made to be. And then he unpacks this idea of individual self-expression being the cage in which humanity has now found itself in the West and it is altogether a different creature. Not who God made us to be in the image of God to have dominion and to shape and create and steward the earth that he gave us. And so to live as the ultimate good is that I belong only to myself and I am who I say that I am and I will determine who I am, truly will not free us. It will ruin us if the Bible is true, telling us that you were created, made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, to be the children of God. And so the question I would have is, It is the current modern medicine of the self helping. I would submit that it's not. Colorado and the Children's Hospitals of Colorado have indicated that they've had a 75% increase amongst young adults using their emergency services under the title of behavioral and mental health crisis. Perhaps the modern remedy for you to go discover, determine who you are is not helping. But for us who are educators, who are community members, who are parents, to teach our children that they are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a benevolent God who loves them, and for them to discover the beauty and purpose and design and power that God has put in them, perhaps it's time to give an old remedy a try. What is my only hope in life and death? That I do not belong to myself, but I belong to God, my Redeemer. So that's the image of God. It's a long way to get to what bears His image. Here's the question. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Then render to God what belongs to God. How do we render? Give back to God what belongs to God. What do we do? We, we give ourselves back to God. This is what Paul writes to a church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You're not. For you were bought with a price, a precious price, of the Son of God. So glorify God in your body. So how we use our bodies is not to glorify ourselves or bring attention to ourselves, but to make God famous. Glorify God. How do you bring glory to God? Well, this is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says, when he writes to a church In Rome, this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice. But this is a daily, this is a surrendering sacrifice. Holy, meaning set apart. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Like, worship isn't just singing the songs on Sunday. Worship is how we live in our bodies for the glory of God. And he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world take the image that God has put on you and form it into its own image. Like the world has a minting press of its own. Don't jump in it. Don't let the world conform you to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Like you can be changed. There's hope for transformation, for renewal, and that comes in your mind with the Lord. By the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Alan points out God gives us, so here's here's the conclusion. God gives us our identity. He is the source of our affirmation. And in his love for us, we find our eternal and unchanging worth. Our unchanging worth is that God has made us in his image. And so know that you have been made in the image of God. You are extremely valuable. You are very loved. And you are called to give to God what bears his image, which is ourselves. Our whole life to be surrendered to him. Now, here's where the Easter story comes back when we get back to Luke is that God is in the flesh. And oftentimes I'm asked, why, why does God have to become flesh? Why does he have to become a man? Why does he have to die on a cross? You ever get that question? It's because the mission is to restore the image of God. He's not just interested in saving you spiritually or saving your soul. He's interested in redeeming all things that have been broken, especially his image bearers. And so Jesus comes in the flesh to restore the flesh. He comes as a human to restore humanity. That's what Hebrews tells us. He's not angels he helps. It's the offspring, his children. And so he has to take on flesh And is made in all the ways that we've been made so that he can redeem it. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we were all born into Adam and and we all experienced the sin and and the destruction of Adam. Would you like to be born into Christ and have your image restored? Have it be made new as it was intended to be made? This is Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse I guess we threw up 17 probably. Yeah, we'll start on 17. For if because one man's trespass, that was Adam and Eve's original sin, death reigned, you know what that word reigned is? Had dominion. So death currently has dominion over us who are born in Adam. That's all, everybody in this room. Much more will those who receive, you have to to receive this gift, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, reign, give you your dominion back in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Everyone was born in Adam in this room, and death has dominion over us. Our image is broken. But if you receive the grace of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, then you'll be having the dominion, the reigning dominion of an image bearer back in life through the work of Jesus Christ. What wonderful news is that? And so this is what Jesus is on mission for. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those he foreknew, those who, who was going to come to him, he also predestined, he determined that something would happen to those who come to him. What did he predetermine would happen to you if you come to Jesus? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. So those who come to Christ, what is Jesus going to do for you? Is form you into the image of the perfect human to restore to you the image of God, the Salem that has been bent and distorted. How wonderful is that? That Jesus Christ came so that you would know whose you are And by knowing whose you are, you know who you are and your need for a Savior to come and restore what has been broken. And so this Easter we look and say, oh, there's Jesus the Christ who not only saves our soul, but redeems humanity and to form us into his own likeness. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to sing. It makes me want to worship him. And say, Lord, you're so kind not only to make me, but then not abandon me. And then so love me that you would come to redeem me and form me into the image of the perfect human. The restored Imago Day, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a wonderful work of God. And so I'm going to have the team come up. We're going to sing one more song. And we're going to praise God that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in his likeness. And our desire is to render to God what belongs to God. And who in this room belongs to God? I do. And so let us, let's pray and then let us sing. Father, we, Father, we come to you and just give you all the glory and honor. You truly are a holy, set-apart God for our good. And Lord, I I pray that these truths would be truths that we would know as Jesus taught us. That we would know the truth. And the truth would set us free. Would set us free to be who you made us to be. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.